Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series entitled, Abraham, the Father of Our Faith. For more information about CBC or how you can get plugged in, visit the website, cbcsavannah.com. the Bible tells us that no man could look on you and live. It tells us your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You're so set apart, God. You're so different than us. And Lord God, today you are worthy to be worshipped by us. You're worthy of it. You deserve it. And we admit we've just fallen so, so far short of that, God. Lord, there's just a whole list of other things and other people that we have loved and valued above you. And this morning, we're sorry. Lord, we want to see you. I want you to be on the throne of our hearts. Lord, would you open our eyes this morning to see your greatness? Would you open our eyes to see your worth? Would you open our eyes to see your value, your goodness? Lord, again, I need help. (laughs) I need so much help. I'm so weak. I'm so sinful. So guilty of the things that even we're talking about today. Lord, but I am reminded, you love your church. You love these people so much that you have died for us. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Lord, I am encouraged this morning that you want to bless us through the word of God. I'm encouraged that you want to speak to us, that you want to build us up. The proof is the cross of Christ. We believe it. Would you teach us now by the spirit of God in Jesus' name? Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. We are going to be in Genesis 22 this morning. Genesis 22, so you can flip it in your Bibles. If you're brand new to the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. 22 chapters in is where we're going to be. Um, Over the course of the last three months or so, we've been looking at the life of Abraham. And we have seen Abraham uh, at his worst doing some very human things, making some very faithless decisions, and we have seen Abraham do some awesome things and exercise incredible faith. Um, And today, today we get to see Abraham at his best. Genesis 22, friends, is the unrivaled high point of the life of Abraham. Um, It is, it's Abraham at his best. And so let me quickly quickly set the stage. Um, Last week, After 25 years of promises and waiting and promises and waiting, this baby Isaac finally came. The Lord delivered on his promise. And this little baby is the one through whom God is going to bring the blessing to the world. And a lot of time passed in chapter 21. This baby is weaned. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. And then probably between 21 and 22, at least a decade passes. They've just been living life. 
Abraham and his boy. Isaac is now the only son that he's got. They've been going through life together. And at the beginning of 22, once again, God speaks. This time when God speaks, he doesn't come to reassure Abraham of the promise. He comes to test him. God comes to test Abraham. Now I want you to think for a minute, what's the biggest test you've ever taken? Biggest test you've ever taken. Now we've got some docs, we've taken the MCAT, we've got some lawyers, we've taken the bar, CPA exam maybe, we're grateful to CPAs this time of year, you may still be on vacation. Biggest, uh, biggest test I've ever taken, probably the SAT. Yep. And based on the way that I performed on the SAT, I thought, man, I need to figure out how to never take a test again. And then I heard about uh, this physical education thing where you could take tests on team sports and recreational games. And I thought, wait, why are all these doctors and lawyers studying for six years for a test they might not pass when you can just learn the rules of dodgeball real quick and knock it out? Like, I don't know who, who the smart one is now, but anyway. <laughs> Listen, most of y'all have taken tests uh, that are much more important than the tests I've taken. But very few of us have ever faced a test like the one that Abraham faces in Genesis chapter 22. And it cannot be exaggerated how difficult and excruciating this test is. And before we look at the text, I just want to ask the question, what is this test all about? What is Abraham being tested on? And just a cursory reading of the chapter lets us in on it real quick. In verse 2, God is after what Abraham loves most. In verse 5, Abraham says it's about worship. Verse 12, the language, it's about the fear of God, right, which is synonymous with worship. Here's what God is testing Abraham on. He's wanting to identify who is on the throne of Abraham's heart. Who does he love most? Is it the boy or is it God? Is it this gift or is it the giver? Who is Abraham worshiping? And today, here's what we're going to do. We're going back to school with Abraham. I know some of you guys are like, gosh, I'm out of here. Honey, why'd you drag me here? We're going back to school with Abraham. We've got two objectives. First objective, we want to learn what worship is. We want to see from Abraham what worship looks like in action. That's objective number one. And then objective number two is we want to take the worship test with Abraham. We want to ask some questions and examine our hearts to, to consider who's on the throne of my heart? Who am I functionally worshiping? Okay, so that's where we're going today. Um, based on what we'll find, we'll, we'll do, our, do our best to respond appropriately. And let me just say before we dive in, guys, I don't know what you've been through this week. I'm sure lots of y'all have had difficult weeks, challenging weeks. You come in with struggles. You come in with hurts. You come in with pain. But I just want to tell you, this book is a gift from God to you. And he wants to speak to you through this book this morning. He wants to encourage us. He wants to build us up. And let's, let, let's hear what he has to say to us. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham. Said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 
And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now let me quickly say, as we're diving in, we know something here Abraham doesn't know. Okay? We know that this is a test. We know that God is not going to make Abraham kill his son. God has revealed his character in Scripture. He has proven his love for life. He has proven his goodness. He does not intend to have Abraham kill his son. So don't take the temptation to get caught up in hypotheticals and what ifs. Let's, let's listen to what the text has to say to us this morning. So after these things, after what things? After Isaac was born and weaned, after Ishmael and Hagar are gone, and we're talking at least a decade after. And here's how we know this. The word for boy in the passage is the same word as young man. As Abraham is going up the mountain, he's carrying a heavier load than dad is. So when you think about Isaac, don't think about a little guy. Think about somebody who's well into his teens, 15, 18, 20 years old. And here's what that means. It means for the last 10 or 15 years, Abraham and his boy have been together. They've worked on projects together. They've laughed together. They've got inside jokes. They've got memories. They've laughed. They've cried. Isaac's heard all the stories. He's heard about how his dad's been a bonehead. He's heard all about the faithfulness of this God. There is no doubt that by this time, Abraham just loves his boy. But not only that, in this culture, the hope and the dream and the future of a man rested on the shoulders of his firstborn son. So, man, Abe loves his boy. He's hoping in his boy. And then more than that, guys, this is God's promise to Abraham. Isaac is the one through whom the blessing is going to come. And so can you see the temptation that Abraham would have had to love this boy more than he loved God? You see that temptation? To hope in the boy more than he hoped in God. And God knew it was a temptation, and so he puts Abraham to the test. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up. Now, let me say something. We're familiar with this passage. Most of you are familiar with this passage. Here's what we cannot do. We cannot get desensitized to the reality of this passage. This actually happened. This is a real man with his real son. And God says to this real man about his real son whom he loves, take your son, your only son, whom you love, every phrase more personal, right? Like the twisting of a knife. What's God putting his finger on? Putting on the, his finger on the one that Abraham loves. Offer him up. And it's a simple test. If he obeys God, it's clear that he loves God more than he loves the boy. If he doesn't, he loves the boy more than he loves God. God was after who was on the throne of Abraham's heart. And friends, this is where worship begins. It begins in the heart. And here's our first lesson about worship. Worship is about love. It's about what we love. 
It's about loving God more than we love anything or anyone else. Okay, it's, it's not all that worship is, but it is definitely where worship begins. Worship begins in the heart with what we love. In fact, the word worship comes from the English word, old English word, worth-ship. Right? And the idea is what, what do you attribute worth to? What is most valuable to you? Whatever is most valuable to you, that's, that's ultimately the object of our worship. And, and Jesus, Jesus makes the negative side of this clear in Matthew 15. He's talking about a group of outwardly religious guys. Kind of do all the right things. But he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Right? He's saying, I'm not really what they value. I'm not really what they love from their heart. Worship is all about what you love most. That's what you're going to end up worshiping. And when you understand that that's what worship is, it's easy to see that as human beings, we're always worshiping. We are always attaching value and meaning and praise and celebration to something. Now, that worship is meant to be directed toward God. But as sinners, here's what we do. We misdirect our worship and we place it on other things, other people. And the book of Romans is clear about this. It says that we exchange the glory of God for created things. This is what Abraham was in danger of, and it's what we're in danger of this morning, right? To put the gifts of God in the place of God. And this doesn't just happen with bad things. Friends, this happens most often with good things. With a spouse, kid, a job, a lifestyle, a house, a relationship, a reputation, an ambition or a dream or a goal, Performance in school, performance at work, power, control, comfort, approval. We are tempted to put these things on the throne of our hearts, to value them more than we value anything else. And when we do, the Bible calls this idolatry. Okay, idolatry is when anything enthralls our heart more than God, or when anything becomes more important to us than God, then that thing becomes an idol. God didn't want that to happen to Abraham, and he doesn't want it to happen to us. So we gotta, we got to take the test with him. So here's our first set of test questions. First set of test questions. Who or what is most valuable to you? Be honest with yourself here. Engage your heart. Maybe you want to write it down. Maybe you want to pray. God, reveal this to me. Who or what is most valuable to you? When you're honest with your motives, what most enthralls your heart? Right? And another way to ask this question, another way to consider this is this, when you have time to daydream, where does your mind go? What do you constantly think about? What if you lost it or were forced to give it up? What would, what would make life meaningless? If the answer to those questions for us is something or someone other than Christ, then we are in danger of, of putting that, that thing or that person on the throne of our hearts. God challenged Abe because he wanted to see who was on the throne of his heart. Let's see what he does, okay? Verse three, let's keep rocking. And again, y'all, let the reality of this sink in. We, 
we need to be shocked by this because this is, don't get too comfortable with it. I'm talking mostly to myself. All right. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. Friends, this should shock us. This is complete surrender and obedience to God. And just take note of the action verbs in these verses. Abraham rose early. If this was me and God told me to do this to one of my daughters, I would delay for as long as I possibly could. But I'd be pulling the old alarm trick. Uh, Lord, 7 p.m., not 7 a.m. What was I thinking? Or doing the nationwide commercial stuff, right? The Lord, the, the, the leaves aren't going to rake themselves, Lord. I would be delaying however I could. Not Abraham. He got up early. He saddled his donkey. He took his young men. He cut the wood. He went as God told him. No complaining, no, question, no questioning. Step after obedient step for three days. Point this to soak in. Three days. This is not an adrenaline rush and quick obedience. This is three days of calculated submission to God. And we're not told what this was like for Abraham. We're not told about what this was, his thoughts were like or his emotions were like. But friend, just imagine. I mean, can he sleep at night? How bad is the pain that he feels all the time for those three days, the knot in his throat? Can he even look at the boy? Can he talk to him? What is that like? Text never tells us. But here's what it does tell us. It tells us that even when he didn't understand, he obeyed. And then after three days, they get to this place where, where they're going, and he looks at his two young men and he says, Y'all stay here. Me and the boy, we're going up to worship. We're going up to worship. Abraham understood this whole thing was about worship. And again, more action verbs took the wood, laid it on his son, took the fire and the knife, and they went. Both of them together, completely surrendered to God. And it's here we learn our second lesson about worship. Worship's about obedience. Worship is about obedience. It's about saying yes to God. It's about obeying God no matter what he asks, even when we don't understand. 
It's about submitting to this reality that he is the creator and I'm the creature and I belong to him. Worship is about obedience. All right, and let, let me especially kind of encourage the young folks here for just a minute. Um, there is a strong temptation, especially in the American church culture, um, to think worship is all about this emotional singing experience that makes us feel really good in the, on the inside, okay? And y'all, I love to worship God through song. God deserves our loudest praises and cheers. He is way more valuable than touchdowns and slam dunks and anything else. So he deserves it. But we cannot limit worship to a guy in a capital V-neck t-shirt wearing his sister's jeans to create some emotional experience for us, right? That's, that's not worship, okay? The Bible tells us that worship is about the exaltation of God with our whole life. And Jesus makes this so clear for us. John chapter 14, verse 15. says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If I'm on the throne of your heart, you're going to obey. We don't measure our worship, friends, in the loudness of our songs. We measure our worship in our willingness to obey. This is why God's testing Abraham this way. If Abraham obeys God, it's clear who is on the throne of his heart. So we need to take the test with him. See who's on the throne of our heart. And here's, here's the next question. What does your obedience or lack of obedience reveal about your love for God? What does your obedience or lack of obedience reveal about your love for God? And then, is there any specific area in your life where you're refusing to obey God? Any, any place in your life that you just, you won't let God touch? Maybe it's money, or sexuality, or entertainment, or food and drink. Maybe it's um, your wardrobe, or your spending. Maybe it's a boy, maybe it's a girl. Maybe it's your job, or your business. If there's anything or anyone in our lives that we won't let God speak into that area, we won't let him direct us there, then we're starting to see who might be on the throne of our heart. Now, based on Abraham's obedience, we can start to see who's on the throne of his heart. But the test is not over, okay? And it gets harder before it's done. And so let's, let's keep going. Verse, verse uh, 22, 7, 8. At this point, they are on their way up the mountain. Um, this is the only conversation in the Bible recorded between Abraham and Isaac. And here's how it goes. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And y'all, if I was Abraham, this would have been the dagger for me. I mean, it's one thing to keep quiet and keep going and obey, but this question would have engaged the emotions. When your son looks up at you and says, dad, we've, we've done this before. We've worshipped before. But where's the lamb this time? Where is he? But Abraham's response, it's, it's unreal. We don't see tears. We don't see him act in fear. 
We don't see him falter. We just see a faithful answer. And here's what he says. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Friends, in the middle of horrible circumstances, Abraham trusted God. Even when he didn't understand, Abraham trusted God. And he thought one of two things. He thought, hey, either we're going to get up there and God is going to provide a lamb in the place of my son, which is what he seems to indicate in his answer. Or he thought, man, God has promised that this boy is the heir, that the blessing is coming through him. So even if I bring the knife down on him, God can raise him from the dead. And we know that he thought that because of Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. But here's the big idea for us, and it's simple. Simple but not easy. In the middle of horrible circumstances, Abraham trusted God. And this is our next lesson about worship. Worship's about trust. Worship is about trust. It's about trusting God even when we don't understand what he's doing. It's about believing God even when we have no clue how he is going to provide for us. And I I told the first service at this point, I, I feel very inadequate to preach this whole sermon, but especially this point in the sermon, because some of you guys are going through just horrific things. And I'm asking a lot of the same questions that y'all are. God, how long are you going to let this go on? When are you going to intervene? How, how in the world are you going to work this for good? Why don't you just show up, God? Won't you do something? And I hope that you will be just encouraged by Abraham's example this morning. To trust God even when it's painful. To trust God even when you don't understand what he's doing, or how he could work through this. There's a a quote by Charles Spurgeon that is so helpful on this topic. He says, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must learn to trust his heart. Friend, I just, if you were in the test right now, if you were in the trial, I just want to humbly encourage you God is for your good. God wants you to know him more. God wants to make you more like his son. He intends to use whatever circumstance that you're in, as difficult as it is, toward that end. So what he was doing for Abraham is what he's doing for you. And friend, when you trust him, when you don't understand, and when you wait for his provision, when you have no clue how it's going to come, this is worship to God. This is pleasing to God. It honors him. And so here's our next test question. Do you trust that God knows what he's doing? you trust that God has your best interest at heart? We know Abraham believed this, and we know because of what he does next in, in 22, 9, and 10. And again, let the weight of this moment please weigh on you. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. 
and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So the stage is finally set. One thing to obey for three days on a journey. It's another thing when the moment comes and Abraham builds the altar and Abraham lays his own son on the altar and binds him. And let me just remind you, this is his son. This is the son he loves. This is the heir to the blessing. This is the one through whom the promise would come. This is the most precious person in the world to Abraham. And he picks up the knife, fully intending to slaughter his son. Abraham! Abraham! Stop! Now I know that you fear God because you did not withhold your son, your only son. And who is this voice? This voice was not God the Father. This voice was God the Son. This was the angel of the Lord who identifies himself with God. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And he stops the test. He says, Abraham, you've passed. I know who's on the throne of your heart. I know that you fear me. Right? In the Old Testament, this word fear, it's all about submission and it's a, obedience. Love and reverence toward God. And God stops Abraham and he says, Abraham, you've proven it. I'm on the throne of your heart. Friends, take a moment. <laughs> take a moment to consider what this must have been like for Abraham. Think about the relief. Think about the joy. Think about just the crumbling humility and power of God. This is grace. <laughs> but the grace doesn't stop. God's just getting started. And now we see him give to Abraham this grace, first in the form of, of provision and then second in the, in the form of promise. So uh, Genesis twenty-two thirteen, God's provision. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. And I hope this brings you right to John chapter 1, where John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Definitely wants to draw our attention to this moment. Behind him there's a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So he stops, he looks behind him, and there is this unscathed, unblemished ram waiting to be offered, caught in the thicket by his thorns. And friends, I don't usually tell you all to write something in your Bible or to circle a word or underline it. In fact, let me just confess something. When Bill Fowler tells me to underline something in my Bible, I'm like, don't tell me what to write in my Bible. And God's revealed to me this week that I have a control idol and I need to submit to my pastor. Um, 
But if there was ever a word to circle in your Bible, it's this little word instead. Friends, the word instead in the Bible is just one of the most important words in the whole Bible. And we're going to come back to it in just a second. But this ram is offered up instead of the boy. Abraham trusted God, and just like he suspected, God provides a substitute. And this provision is so great to Abraham that he just stops and he says, hey, this place has a new name. This land belongs to me anyway. We're calling this place the Lord will provide. So God offers his grace to Abraham in provision, but he also also offers his grace to Abraham in promise. He reiterates the promise to Abraham. He's made a handful of times already. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so God here, he swears by his own name, the highest authority that exists. And then, as if to doubly guarantee and authenticate this promise, twice he says, surely I will bless you, surely I will multiply you. Your descendants will be as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. I will will." Give you the gate of your enemies, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Right? And we're seeing that promise day after day after day fulfilled as people from every nation and language and tribe and tongue put their faith in Jesus and are welcomed into Abraham's family. God is still fulfilling this promise. There's one more thing that we see here that leads us to worship and teaches us about worship. We see it based based on his provision and his promise. And here's, here's what we see. Only God is worthy of our worship. It's our last lesson today on worship. Only God is worthy of our worship. No one else can provide like he can. No one else can keep their promise like he can. No one else can carry the weight of our worship. I just want you to think about this. Think think about whatever idol might rival God in your heart. And here's the truth about idols. Either we crush them or they crush us. Let me just explain through using, using the, the thought of a child, okay? If your child is your idol, if your child is what you value most, love most, uh, hope in most, then one of two things will happen. One, the weight of that burden on them, they will crumble under it. They will not be able to live up to the, the expectations and the idol will crumble. Or... They will do something different than you had planned for them or they will fail in their attempt to please you or whatever and you will crumble because your idol is not performing like you hoped it might. Or your child will get exactly what you had wanted and you'll realize that doesn't deliver. So we either crush our idols or they crush us. There is only one who can handle the weight of our worship. God is the only one. He's the only one worthy of it. He's the only one who deserves it. He's the only one who can handle it. And just in case this morning you need one more reason to worship him, there's one more thing I want to highlight in the text. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're not a Christian, you don't identify as a Christian, um, number one, I'm so glad that you're here. 
And you might think this sounds so strange, but I think God, by his Holy Spirit, brought you here this morning. I know that sounds weird. You might understand later. Um, If you have not heard anything else in this sermon, I want you to just kind of zoom in right now if you can. I want you to lean in. Um, Because this, this text is not just about God testing Abraham and then providing for Abraham. This text is also about how God would one day provide for us and how he would demonstrate himself to be worthy of our worship. See, there's more than one father in this passage. There's more than one son. 2,000 years after this happened, another son walked up the exact same hill. And just like Isaac carried his own wood up that hill. Jesus Christ carried the wood of a cross up that hill. Just like Isaac was bound, Jesus Christ was bound. But friend, this time there's no voice from heaven. This time there is nobody to stop it. In fact, the only voice we hear is the same voice that we hear in Genesis 22, the voice of the Son of God. And here's what he says on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the knife comes down. Why? Why does the whole Bible point us to that moment? Why did God the Father pour out his wrath on God the Son? Why did he bring the knife down? Friend, the answer is all about worship. It's because you and I have failed to worship the one true God. We have not honored him as God or given thanks to him, the book of Romans says. So we have failed to worship him as God, but not only that, we have chosen to worship other things. We have put more value on little toys and on created people than we have on the one true God. And the Bible makes it really clear that there is only one fair price for this, and that this is the judgment of God, the wrath of God. And some of you guys might think, well, man, that language is so strong, or that's, isn't that harsh? And friend, no. It's right, and we know it's right. Our conscience bears witness that it's right. I mean, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about a dad, a dad who loves his kids, who goes above and beyond to do good for his kids, goes out of his way to give them things that they want. Here's the problem. The kids are selfish. They don't like their dad. They're not thankful to their dad. Day after day after day, he serves them. Day after day after day, they eat his food. They take his money. So he, he takes money out of a savings account to get his daughter a prom dress. But she just takes it without even looking at him. And he works overtime for a year to buy his, his boy the car that he's been waiting for and dreaming of. The kid takes the keys and leaves. Never tells his dad thanks. Disrespects him. Disowns him. Yeah, we'll we'll use you for your stuff, but we want nothing to do with you. Friends, this is what we've done with God. Only it's way, way, 
worse. Of course judgment is proper. Of course it is. Day after day, he sustains us. He puts breath in our lungs. He causes our hearts to beat. But we take his things and we choose them over him. Of course we deserve his judgment. How could we not? And friend, he's a good judge. He operates by justice. Can't just let that slide. Justice must be upheld. A penalty must be paid. But as a good father, he cannot stop loving us. And he will not. So what does he do? Well, God the Father and God the Son, they come up with a plan whereby God can maintain his justice and holiness and righteousness and can punish sin as he ought to, but he can let guilty sinners go free. And how does it work? Well, it's all around this simple little word, instead. Jesus Christ, just like that ram, unblemished, never sinned, never failed, always honored his father, always obeyed him, always trusted him, always loved him. But God put forward his own son to die instead of us. And like that ram was caught in the thicket by his horns, Jesus Christ had a crown of thorns on his head. And he was nailed to a Roman cross, and on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ instead of being poured out on you, and instead of being poured out on me. He got what we deserve, all of our idolatry onto him. All of our thanklessness, onto him. All of our entitlement, onto him. And he took the full punishment for all of it. But friends, hear the gospel. This is good news, and I hope you get it in your guts. Hope you love it. We get what he deserves. This is the trade. This is the exchange. I want you to think about this. Think about the way that Abraham loved Isaac. Take a minute. Think about the way that Abraham loved Isaac. How much did Abraham love his son? Okay. Now I want you to take a minute and think, how much did God the Father, how much does God the Father love his son? You cannot put an amount on it. Infinite passion for his son, infinite love for his son, infinite approval in his son, infinite pleasure in his son. And friend, when you believe the gospel, when you believe that Jesus Christ died in your place, all of that is credited into your account. So you wanna know how God feels about you this morning? He's crazy about you. He loves you the same way he loves Jesus Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. This is the gospel. And so friend, if you're wondering why he would do that, because listen, you should be wondering why. I mean, you should look in the mirror and wonder, why did God die for me? Because I'm thinking, I look in the mirror and I say, I don't know, (laughs) that's the right answer. (laughs) I'm getting carried away, Tony, I see you laughing down here. Gosh, 
Why would he do this? Okay, let me just settle back in. Talk like a normal human. Okay. (laughs) Why would he do this? Friend, it's all about worship. He would do this so we would see how good he is and how awesome he is, so that our eyes would open to how wonderful and valuable and worthy God is, and he would sit again on the throne of our hearts. It's about worship. So how do we respond? Three things. Three things that each of us need to do, and it doesn't matter if you're not a Christian or if you've been a Christian for 50 years, we all, all need to respond in these three ways, okay? And here's what they are. First, we need to repent of our idolatry, and we need to repent of our failure to worship God. We're all guilty to some degree. We all have things that rival God's place in our life. You guys, I could give you a list of things from this week in my heart that are pathetic, What we need to do is see that this is sin against God. We need to own that we are guilty of it, and we need to turn from it. We need to say, God, take your place back on on the throne. These other things don't deliver. These other things aren't worth it. We need to turn from our sin. That's what repentance is, okay? Second, we need to believe the gospel. We need to believe the gospel. This is what the non-believer needs, and this is what the Christian needs. We need to, again, believe the gospel. When we see our sin, when we are convicted of our guilt, we don't need to obsess over it. We don't need to stay there too long. We need to take our eyes off of ourselves. We need to transfer them to the cross of Christ where we see the Son of God in our place, bearing our shame. He has taken our sin on himself. He has paid for it. Friend, there is no, le- there's no debt left for you to pay. There is no judgment left for you to bear. God just wants you to enjoy grace. Wants you to enjoy it. Wants you to rest in it. That's how you respond. And if you're not a Christian, that's how you become a Christian, is you believe in that. You don't believe in your good works. You don't believe in anything that would get you to God. You just believe that Jesus died in your place and rose again. And he will bring you into his family. It's the most glorious thing ever. It's how you become a Christian. And friends, it's also how you continue as a Christian. Okay, we don't just stop with the gospel and start kicking our little feet, swimming real hard, trying to get this thing done by works. No, we keep repenting. We keep believing. God keeps strengthening us. So first, we repent. Second, we believe the gospel. And third, we worship God. And right now, we want to stand and worship God because he is worthy of our worship. And when we leave, we want to offer to him all of our love and all of our obedience and all of our trust. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Oh God, we, we are hard of seeing how great you are. But Lord, I, I pray that this morning you just, you've given us a little glimpse, that we can see a little bit more of your greatness, a little bit more of your glory, a little bit more of your worth. Lord, we want to thank you for this passage, Genesis 22. I want to thank you, Lord, for what, what Abraham went through and what Isaac went through. God, we today are literally blessed by Abraham's obedience 4,000 years ago. Thank you for that example. But most of all, Lord God, we just want to thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Lord, thank you for laying down your life for us. And Father, thank you for putting him forward. I, I can't imagine how painful that was for both father and son, Lord. And we just want to worship you. You've won our worship 
pray that you'd help us to worship you right now and with our lives all week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You guys stand with us.